0: Last week we finished the upper, not the upper room discourse, the Olivet discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which uh, then leaves this this gap of time. There's a four week Advent season typically, and then there is uh, New Year's Eve, which is Sunday, which is people are gone and traveling and all of that. and I'm not going to start Matthew 26 till we get to the first of the year. So you've got New Year's Eve, which is one Sunday, and then four Sundays for Advent. That's five Sundays, and that just leaves this week and next week. And rather than doing some punting little two-week thing and then Advent, I'm just going to do a seven-week Advent series. So pray for me. Topical series are less, uh, less easy for me to do. I'm just OCD enough that I I don't know when I'm done with a topic. If you give me a passage, I know when I get to the last verse. Uh, All of this is going to have to do with the Incarnation. And we're beginning this morning with the the sovereignty of God and the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, The Incarnation... Which is the the word that we use to describe God taking on human flesh. God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The middle person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh. He was born as a man. Having been born as a man, he will be eternally now human as well as divine. He's fully God. He is fully man from the moment of his conception by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. This is thoroughly a a God idea. It is not a human idea. Islam is the second largest religion in the world. Well over a billion followers of Islam. They find the idea of the incarnation to be ridiculous and offensive. Uh, For them, God is completely other. And the idea that God would take on human flesh is, is evil. It's wicked to them. A quarter of humanity is Buddhist or or Hindu. Uh, Buddhists and Hindus are doing everything that they can to escape physical reality and, in fact, to escape consciousness. Their goal is not to live somewhere else spiritually. Their goal is simply to cease. Because for them, existence is simply suffering. Only only biblical Christianity says that God took on human flesh and did so to save sinners from the judgment of God. Throughout the process of the incarnation, which is a it, it's kind of a brief event in scripture, God exercises his sovereignty and of course his sovereignty is exercised throughout creation from the, from the very beginning and before that and all the way through the end of eternity, which eternity doesn't have an end, so I'm not sure why I said that. We're going to begin with a brief primer on the, uh, on the, the sovereignty of God. Many people don't really understand it. Um, there are a lot of cross-references this morning. Many, many, many. I urge you to look them up. I put them there so that you could look them up. Uh, Our plan had been to tonight for our evening service to talk about um, living happily with the sovereignty of God. We've got enough people who are going to be away we're not going to meet tonight. Um, So either we'll do that next week or we'll do that in the weeks to come. We're going to be talking about the the incarnation and and God's sovereignty frequently. Um, And we'll go into much more detail once, once we're able to deal with it in an evening service. So let's begin with this, this primer on God's sovereignty. Let me pray and then we'll do that. <coughs> Father, we thank you for your, your holiness and for your graciousness, for your justice and for your mercy and your kindness. You've given us the scripture so that we would understand you and you have revealed things in your word that frankly are difficult for us to grasp. Uh, some of them are difficult for us to grasp Grasp intellectually. We, we don't really understand how Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man and have two natures but only be one person. Uh, that's what your word teaches. We accept that it's true, but we don't really understand how it works. And Lord, your sovereignty is another subject that we just don't understand. Part of it is intellectual and part of it is emotional. And so would you help us to understand it, uh, the the basic terms of it, and then help us to see how because of your sovereignty we have a Savior and we can have complete peace in you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we say that God is sovereign, what is it that we mean? We mean, simply put, that Yahweh... which is God's name, Yahweh is in complete control of everything that happens. Nothing happens apart from his specific decree. Sovereignty doesn't mean that God has predicted the future. It doesn't mean that he simply looked forward in time to see what will happen randomly and then said, okay, we'll do that. It's that he orchestrates and controls everything, Uh, The extent of God's sovereignty begins with the creation of all things. It includes every government. It includes the election of the saints and the reprobation of the wicked, the sufferings of Christ, and the actions of his executioners, the regeneration of sinners, the sanctification of Christians, and every aspect of human life. It even includes little animals and human hair. Jesus said, not a sparrow falls from the, from the sky apart from your father. He doesn't mean not a sparrow falls without your father seeing it. There'd be no point in saying that. Not a sparrow falls without it having reached the, the, the microseconds of its life according to God's decree. It falls just as God had decreed that it would fall. Um, the practical outworking of God's sovereignty is important because the sovereignty of God is not a theoretical idea. It's not a philosophical idea. It's how he does all things. So Yahweh acts according to his own pleasure and for no other reason. He does not answer to anyone for what he does ever. Uh, By the way, later on today, Penny will be uploading the manuscript or I will upload the manuscript well, yeah, but I'll, ha- I'll have it uploaded on the Sermon Audio site. Penny will have it. And you'll be able to get my notes in detail. There's, I'm going through a lot of detail. I get that. There's just not time to do anything other than bullet list stuff right now. So God doesn't, doesn't answer to anybody for what he does ever. When, when we shake our fist at him and say, how could you do that? He, he doesn't wring his hands and say, ooh, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Using a biblical metaphor, we find this metaphor in, uh, in Ezekiel, I believe, and in the book of Romans, God is always the potter, and his creatures are always the clay, and never the reverse, never the reverse. Isaiah 40 says that the combined nations of the earth are no more, no more an obstacle to God's purpose than a fleck of dust. No one can prevent God from doing what he pleases, when he pleases, to whom he pleases. So what a wonderful thing it is that God is holy and that he's good and that he's just. Because if he weren't, nobody could stop him from doing what he wanted so all of that is kind of well and good, but the sovereignty of God hits us hard in a couple of areas. And we just need to acknowledge it. Uh, first, most of us kick against the sovereignty of God uh, when it comes to his actions toward people. Toward people. A, a hurricane happens, a tornado happens, um, there's an earthquake... And people will say, well, it's an act of God. But what about cancer? Is that accidental? We expect God to follow our desires. We just kind of inherently want that to be. We want him to be nice to the people we like, and we want him to judge those we don't. In truth, we have no right to demand that God do or not do anything. He doesn't answer to anyone, you and me included. And then, of course, the second point is, at some, t- at some point, we all have a hard time with God being in control of salvation. Every person, I'm a diehard Calvinist. I believe in the, the, the doctrines of grace. I absolutely am convinced that election is a biblical doctrine and reprobation. Romans 9.18 says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires, but my heart kicks against that. Because I see people that I love and that I care about, and they don't know him. And I want to be able to say, it all is their fault and it all falls on them. And of course, judgment takes place because we are sinners. But I want to be able to say if I could just convince them, if I could just say the right words, if I could present it in the right way, if I could use the right illustration, I could convince them and then they, they would be okay. And the truth is, he has mercy on whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. I've heard people say, well, that's not really what it means. I've even heard people say about that verse, that's not true. And this is what it says. This is what it says. We want a reason for God's actions concerning salvation to be found in the person. So we, we look at somebody that we think is nice and they're put together and they're trying hard and we want him to reward them with eternal life. And we see others who are wicked and evil in what they do and we want him to judge them with judgment but so often even in scripture we see that the worst receive his mercy and some people we would say are really the best are under his judgment Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says that those who have faith have faith because God gives them faith He doesn't just give them the capacity to believe. We have the capacity to believe. We we are born ready to believe. And I tell you what, we'll believe just about anything. We'll believe just about anything. Saving faith is the belief that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he is the Son of God, that he has given his life for the sake of the wicked, and that those who trust in him will be saved. That's believing faith. If you believe that with the depth of your being, that's because God has given you that. The word faith in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace that you're saved through faith. The word faith there is a noun. He doesn't give you the the ability to carry out the verb believe he gives you the belief itself so those of us who came to christ later in life know that there's a point where suddenly we knew that it was true we knew who jesus was and we can't explain how it is we know it but we know it second timothy chapter two says that god has to grant the wicked repentance or they won't repent He has to grant it. Now, my job there as the servant of the Lord, your job as a servant of the Lord is to be kind, patient, gentle, willing to teach um, with patience, correcting those who are in opposition. But then Paul goes on to say, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so that they may escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. What if God doesn't give somebody faith? They won't believe. No matter how much we press them, no matter how many movies we show them, no matter how many tracks we give them, they won't believe. What if he doesn't grant somebody repentance? They won't repent. The problem in our mind is that we we divide everything into two typically. So we say either there's pure free will and nobody can make me do anything I don't want to do or I'm just a robot, I'm just a puppet. And the decrees of God work somehow so that while retaining our freedom as people, he has decreed our actions. How does that work in fine detail? I have no idea. But it's true. No one can be saved apart from God's sovereign will But nobody is saved against their will. Nobody says, I woke up this morning believing in Jesus and I hate it. I don't want to believe. Nobody. Those who believe want to believe. And they're delighted to believe. Nobody can be saved apart from repentance. But those who repent do so freely. But God has to grant it to them. Because he's not just a big version of us, he's able to work in ways we can't begin to comprehend. So how can God be completely sovereign and yet people make free decisions? I don't know. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't explain how it works. It only says that it's true. Again, this is just a primer on the issue of sovereignty. There's so much that can be said. There's volumes that could be said. There's a year of preaching that could be done, and we're just not going to do that. So what I want to do is now is talk about the sovereignty of God and the incarnation. Um I've made the comment before that I, I don't prefer thematic topical sermons because I never know what I'm done. I always prefer to have a passage that I can unfold. And I found a passage in Matthew chapter two. We're not starting Matthew all over again. I found a passage, Matthew chapter two, which has four prophetic fulfillments that are brought about by the sovereignty of God, by His decrees. First, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Second, that the father would call his son out of Egypt. Third, that there would be a shattering grief among uh, the, 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 the men and women of Bethlehem because of the murder of the children. And fourth, that God's son would be called a Nazarene. So let's take these one at a time. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he was inquiring of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel." The Magi come from the east, perhaps as far east as India. We don't know. Following the star, just like the the song says, we three kings of Orion. Um, They arrive in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Where's the king who has been born? Herod's got no idea. He goes to the chief priests and scribes. Where is the Messiah going to be born? They don't have to research it. They don't have to look anything up. Oh, easy, Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. Micah 5.2. Easy. Simple. So clear. They don't, they don't have to research it. They already know the answer. But we know something that they don't know. Right? We know that Mary has conceived Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and that she's 90 miles north in Nazareth. How do we get Mary to Bethlehem in time for Jesus' birth so he can be born in Bethlehem? Well, enter Caesar Augustus. Luke writes in the second chapter of his gospel, Now, it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary who was betrothed to him and was with child and now it happened that while they were there the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. So what a stroke of luck. (laughs) The Roman emperor just happens to issue a decree that requires Joseph to take his heavily pregnant wife 90 miles to the south in time for the birth of Christ. And he only has to inconvenience the majority of the Roman Empire to do it. Because this was not a decree for Joseph to go. And it wasn't a decree for people from Bethlehem to go. It was a decree that applied probably to every Roman province other than Italy. And maybe there. Tens of millions of people. Maybe hundreds of millions of people. The Roman Empire stretched from North Africa well to the east in the Middle East, up through Eastern Europe, and as far north as Germany and France. God wanted Joseph to take Mary these 90 miles. And so by his decree, he puts most of the Roman Empire on the move. But luck had nothing to do with it. Proverbs 21.1, this is a good memory verse for our time. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. Caesar Augustus is arguably the most powerful man in the world at this time. Perhaps China had more people. But Caesar is ruling countless provinces, different cultures, different languages, different ethnic groups. He's got more control over nations than anybody else does at the time. He is not quite ready to declare himself divine, but he's, Caesar Augustus, who is the first Caesar, the first dictator of Rome, is on the way to doing that. And yet his heart, meaning not just his emotions, but his will, his mind, the essence of who he was, it's like a pitcher of water in God's hands. God wants him over here, then he wants him over here, he wants him over here, and he just does it. He didn't know that his decree would fulfill scripture. But nothing will hinder the purposes of God. And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem just as Micah 5:2 says. This brings us to the second prophecy. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Historically, Hosea is talking about the deliverance of the the Jews from slavery in Egypt, but it serves not only as a historical description, but as a prophetic statement. And God wants to fulfill it. Here's the problem. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. He's not in Egypt. How do we get him to Egypt? Well, verse 13 says when the Magi had departed from Israel, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now, the story here, of course. Um, is that Herod had said to the Magi, when you find him, come back and tell me where he is so I can worship him. Herod didn't want to worship him. He wanted to murder him. He didn't want any other kings. So the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back. And they, after visiting uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they left Israel without going through Jerusalem. Herod doesn't yet know that they've done that. When they had gone sound of their camels still disappearing down the road and the families finally drifted off to sleep and probably Gabriel the angel wakes Joseph up or talks to him in a dream and says get up and go and Joseph got up and went that night. Herod doesn't yet know what he's going to do but God knows and God's in control. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night, departed from Egypt, And he remained there until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit in Nazareth. We need him in Bethlehem. God works through Caesar Augustus to bring that about. Jesus is born in in Bethlehem, but he needs to get to Egypt. And God decrees that there's going to be a tragedy which is harder for us. Easier to think about tens of millions of people put on the road than to think about a tragedy. Because we don't understand the purposes of God, and we don't understand that from before creation until eternity future, he has a plan that's being worked out in detail. Joseph Mary in Egypt stayed in Egypt, or uh, Joseph Mary in Egypt Joseph, Mary, and Jesus stayed in Egypt for a time, maybe just a brief time. Uh, the, the first time Quirinius is go- in gov- was uh, the governor of Syria was around 7 B.C. Herod died in 4 B.C. So there's a three or four year period total in, in which Jesus could have been born. <clears throat> He's not a newborn when the Magi visit. Herod orders the death of two-year-old and, and younger boys. Jesus is perhaps a year or 18 months. And so he may have only, they may have only been in Egypt a few months before Herod died. The third prophecy is the hard one. Rachel weeping for her children. Verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from 2 years old and under according to the time which he had carefully determined from the magi this is not mythology it's not a fable it's history this really happened as surely as Jesus was born to Mary Herod ordered the slaughter of every, every male child under the age of 2 in in greater Bethlehem this isn't thousands of children it's very likely not hundreds of children it's an area of two or three or four square miles there may have only been a dozen or two but that's still a tragic thing to happen it's still an awful thing to happen how could God decree the death of children because he's decreed everything because he's decreed everything I hate to use human arguments, I hate to make emotional arguments. Is it more comforting to think that God just has to face whatever happens and try and work through it? Or that every last thing that happens is according to a purpose? Often it's a purpose we don't understand. And the event that's taking place is not what we want. It causes enormous grief to us, enormous pain to us. That's why it's so important to know that in the worst of events, as well as in the best of events, God is curating those things carefully and precisely. Verse 17 says, Then what, was, what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying a voice was heard in Ramah, weep, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they were no more. That just doesn't fit our idea of God. It's not what we want. It's not what our hearts want, we think. This is what God says of himself in Isaiah 45:7, the one forming light and creating darkness, producing peace And creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all of these. I am Yahweh who does all of these. We want to isolate the the, the events of our lives and evaluate them and say this was good. This was bad. But we can't do that. We, we want to add up the bad experiences and the good experiences and then we hope that the good outweighs the bad but we don't get to do that. Here's an interesting exercise for you at some point in the next day or two when you have time. Google um, lottery winners and see what happens to them and then ask, was this good? This, this person just won 10 million or 20 million or 100 million in the lottery. Was, did it work out good for them? And so much of the time it doesn't. So much of the time it doesn't. We endured the, the birth of a child with a, a birth defect in 1988. In 1991, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. I would not be in pastoral ministry if those two events had not taken place the birth of our son shattered my view of what life was to be and i longed for something that had eternal value and that directed me started directing me toward ministry but my heart truly when i started when i was aiming at seminary was to to get all the degrees necessary to then go teach in a seminary and somehow having cancer in 1991 shifted my desires to teach theologically well and deep to teach the depths of scripture, but not to teach students to walk with the people of God through their lives and what they go through. So what's good to some turns out disastrous for them, and what seems to be so painful and bad turns out to bring the blessing of God. We can't see the end, and so we tend to panic The slaughter of the children in and around Bethlehem was a small part of Yahweh's plan to reveal his glory to creation. The mothers and the fathers who lost babies that day could not see what that was. And frankly, we can't see it. The scripture doesn't justify this. It simply tells us this is what God did. We have to choose. We're going to trust the one who has decreed all things from the beginning. We have to trust that he is just and that he's good and leave it in his hands. Beyond that, all we can do is lift our hands and worship. We can say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or we can say with Job's wife, curse God and die. But the scripture says if we say curse God and die, the scripture says you speak as a foolish person. Shall we accept good from God and not the painful? The fourth prophecy is that he shall be called a Nazarene. So just to review, Jesus is conceived. He's in Mary's womb. They are in Nazareth. He needs to be in Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus is used by the Lord to accomplish that. After his birth, Jesus is in Bethlehem, but needs to be in Egypt. Can't get called out of Egypt unless you're in Egypt. And he uses the threat from Herod to do that. Herod follows through with that threat. And now Jesus is in Egypt and the angel says to Joseph, he who has sought the child's life is dead, you can go back. And Joseph says, awesome. So verse 21, he got up, he took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Archelaus, Herod Archelaus was as nutty and dangerous as his father was. Linda and I heard a new phrase. And we love this phrase. He was nuttier than a rat in a coffee can. <laughs> he was nuttier than a rat in a coffee can. I love that. That's just really. I know people who are as crazy as a cat in a coffee can. Cats easier. Well that was Archelaus. Archelaus. So Joseph comes into Israel, heard Herod died. Yeah, his son Archelaus is is in charge, and Joseph kind of gets cold inside. They had been in Bethlehem for a year, maybe, year and a half. Joseph was a carpenter. There's no welfare. The baby was born. He immediately seeks work. Nobody in Bethlehem knows them. In, In Nazareth, they all know that Mary had this unplanned pregnancy which either means that she cheated on Joseph and he was stupid enough to marry her anyway, or at the very least, they had no self-control. Either way, it's kind of a shameful thing. But in Bethlehem, nobody knows them. It's a fresh start. Nobody looks at them and, and whispers. So he's heading back to Bethlehem. But Archelaus is the threat. But he's warned by God in a dream and he departs for the district of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. That's an interesting phrase because we can't trace it to an Old Testament prophecy. We can't find a prophecy that says he shall be called a Nazarene. There's a couple of possibilities with it. The, the worst is that it has to do with the Nazarite vow, which is not nearly the same language in the original languages. Uh, another is that it's related to the Hebrew word for branch. Uh, the Messiah is going to be a branch of, of Jesse, of the, of the line of David, and that it's the, I think it's the Hebrew word, Naretz. And it's kind of related there. Another has to do with the Hebrew word for uh, um, now. I can't remember. Um, kind of scornful. Remember when 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 Andrew takes Jesus to Nathaniel and says, uh, "We found the Messiah." He comes out of Nazareth, and Nathaniel says, "Can anything good?" come out of Nazareth. It's related to that, that perhaps that's what it's been called, but we can't point to an exact prophecy. Here's the thing, Matthew could This was the common view is that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. So, we see that every event in in Jesus incarnation was carefully and precisely orchestrated by God the Father. His glorious purpose has come to pass exactly as he wished. He exercises sovereignty over Mary, over Joseph, over Caesar Augustus, the Magi, and Herod. And all of these people freely acted. The angel says to Joseph when he decided to... To to break off the betrothal because Mary's pregnant. He knows it's not his. The angel says to him in a dream, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. The child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph gets up and says, okay, I'll follow through with that. He wasn't reprogrammed. Caesar freely ordered that a census be taken. The Magi freely traveled, however distance, much distance they traveled, Herod freely threatened the life of Christ. Archelaus freely acted on the same sort of greed that marked his father. None of these people were puppets. But if the heart of the king is like water in the hands of God, so is the heart of the shepherd and the heart of the wise man and the heart of the carpenter. He turns it where he wishes. And yet each person acts according to their own nature and desires. Proverbs 16.9 is a great memory verse. The heart of man plans his way, but God directs his steps. Another way to say that would be man plans the route, but God determines the destination. I've planned how I'm going to get there, but God took me to a different place. That's what that means. We see the same pattern of of God's sovereignty repeating through scripture. Yahweh decreed every last event that will take place in creation. And his decree was finalized before anything was made. So he, he calls Abraham out of Ur to the promised land. He rejects Abraham's oldest son, Ishmael, and chooses Abraham's youngest son, Isaac. He rejects Isaac's older son, Esau and and chooses Isaac's younger son Jacob. He renames Jacob to Israel. He looks at Jacob's twelve sons and he chooses the fourth one, Judah, to be the messianic line, but he chooses the eleventh one, Benjamin, to save the rest. Joseph. 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 I'm just every once in a while I just like to see if you're paying attention. That's all that was. <laughs> Years later, Jesus would be known as the son of David. Who's who's David? Well, David is the son of Jesse. Who's Jesse? He's the son of Obed. Who's Obed? Obed is the son of Boaz. Who's Boaz? Uh, Boaz is the son of a man named Salmon and a Jericho prostitute named Tamar. Named Rahab. Good grief. Blood sugar. It must be blood sugar. Good night. This is what happens when you don't planned some of the illustrations in advance. (laughs) Boaz is born to a Jewish man and a prostitute from, from Jericho. And then he sees this woman gleaning in his fields and he's smitten with her. Her name is Ruth, but Ruth is not Hebrew. Ruth is from Moab. How do we get Ruth from Moab to Bethlehem, by the way? Well, there's a famine, and a man named Elimelech, and it takes his wife Naomi and his two sons, uh, Chilion and the other one, and they go to Moab, and they ride out. They ride out the famine, and then Elimelech dies. The sons have married, but they both die, and and Naomi says to her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, stay here. They say, we'll go with you, and and she says, no, I can't give you sons. I can't give you husbands. Stay here. Just remarry among your own people. And Orpah does, but Ruth says, no, your people are my people. Your ways are my ways. Your God is my God. And she goes with her and cares for her. So we, we see how God orchestrates these pieces. There's a very superstitious view within the Roman Catholic Church that, that Mary had to be sinless, the Eastern Orthodox as well. And yet, we see that Jesus' genealogy is filled with very troubled people. By God's wisdom and by God's decree, he weaves them back in in a wonderful way. God does not just foresee what happens, he decrees everything that happens from a collapsing star to a hair falling from your eyelash when you blink. Nothing is out of his control. So what do we do with this as we bring this home? First of all, we must worship. We must worship this God. This is the God who is. We acknowledge him in all all of his glory and power and honor. We acknowledge that our lives don't center around us. He is the, the focus. Our God is strong and majestic. He's always victorious. Isaiah 40, 17 says the world's nations are nothing to him. He counts them as non-existent and worthless, and so even if all humanity got together and voted the same way that God has to do something, he would just sit in heaven and laugh, and then do as he pleases. Second, we must give thanks. You are not the result of random chance. Your birth didn't happen by random chance. He created you He named you before your birth. He knows you. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. Every moment of your life is under his dominion, which is all the more reason to trust him. Even when you don't understand, rather than rebel against him. We must pray, not because prayer alters his sovereign decree. It doesn't, it can't, but because we have no idea what his decree is. And so we hear of a circumstance and prayer lets us press closely against our God as he works his will in those areas that are the most painful and grievous to us. And he draws us close to himself. And sometimes he answers our prayers, which sounds like he, he changes his will and his purpose. But really what that means is we've come to know him enough that we know his will. And other times he doesn't do what we want, which doesn't mean he's refusing to change his will. It means we don't know him that well. We don't know him well enough to understand his will, or he's not revealed it to us. But because we have pressed close to him in that event, we find ourselves comforted. And then fourth, we must trust him. I want you to think about this. Jesus did not come because the Father had an impulse, seeing that man had made a hash of his life and that perhaps he could figure out a way. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from before creation. The names of God's people were written in the book of life before creation. Before God spoke anything to existence, he had already worked out all the details of salvation. He had decreed it. So we have this promise. If you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Without question, we can trust that God won't say, no, not you. Because nobody can believe apart from his gift of faith and nobody can repent apart from him granting them repentance. How do we know when Jesus says in John 10, how do we know? My sheep hear my voice and I will raise them up and I will never cast them away. How do we know he'll never cast us away? Is it because he's going to try really hard? Is it because he's looked into the future to see behavior? There are some who would say that God doesn't determine behavior. He can only look into the future and, and understand it. He sees it happening. But see, if I'm a free agent then, I can change my mind. God has known from eternity past that I was going to go left, but I changed my mind and go right, and now what does God do? Or is he sovereign? So that at the last minute when I say I'm not going left, I'm going right, I find him right there. Because he decreed it. If you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, you will be saved without question, without a doubt. He never tries to do anything. He does what he pleases, and no one can stop him. He can promise salvation to those who turn from their sins and call upon Jesus because their salvation was decreed in eternity past. And this is what's mind-blowing to me. Romans 8 talks about him foreknowing his people. Not just knowing about, but knowing them in relationship If you belong to Jesus, if you belong to the Father through faith in the Son, God the Father is already having fellowship with you in eternity to come. Let that blow your mind. We're linear. We're locked in time. We think until it happens, it hasn't happened. But God is outside of time. And he can just take creation itself and time and roll it in his hands and he can move forward a million years and have intimate fellowship with Penny as his daughter even though she's walking through this now locked in time and that's why we have this certainty he has decreed this he has decreed it this is my testimony my faith has found a resting place Not in device or creed, I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died.